everyone, and welcome to another episode of Then Again at the Northeast Georgia History Center, where we bring you all the history that there is and more, whether you want it or not. And today, I have Dr. Joanna Luthman with me from the University of North Georgia. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Luthman. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what you have studied and what your areas of interest are before we launch into things. Okay, so I focus specifically on English history in the 15 and early 1600s. So I do uh, mostly Tudor and Stuart history in England. Aren't you supposed to always say Stuart when you say Tudor and Stuart England? Or is that just a <laughs> misnomer? <laughs> Yes, well, uh, there's all kinds of ways of, of saying it. Technically, it's <laughs> Scottish, I guess. It's Scottish Stuart, but then they become English. So there's that also. Right. So I wanted to just kind of talk to you today, spoke of, you know, Tudor England and the English Reformation. And lots of people know a little bit about Henry VIII and his six wives. And, you know, the, the legend is that, you know, he, he basically made his own church so that he could marry someone else. But it's not really that simple, is it? Well, not quite. It is true that he made his own church <laughs> that is that is what happens and the impetus for that was so that he could ultimately divorce or uh, get an annulment I should say from his first Spanish wife and then marry uh, Anne Boleyn an English noblewoman so that he could have heirs he didn't have any male heirs from his first wife but it, it doesn't really it, it is the beginning of the Reformation but the Reformation in England is quite a uh, messy affair and Henry did not really have the theological reformation of the church in mind when he created the Church of England. He broke away from the Pope mostly in order to be able to do what he wanted in England and not have a foreign power and did not want to allow him to do what he wanted to do. <laughs> but Henry himself did not significantly change the theology of the English church. So under Henry, you do get the break from Rome in order for him to be able to marry his second wife. But it is not reformed religion in England at that point. So he's really just trying to affect a change in leadership. I mean, is it fair to say he still considers himself a remarkably devout Catholic? Uh, yes, I think that's pretty fair to say. He does, uh, you know, he had a reputation also. He actually, prior to the break with Rome, he wrote specifically against, he wrote a treatise. It was anonymous, but people knew it was the king who'd written it. Uh, he wrote a treatise in defense of the seven sacraments because Luther famously had argued there were only two sacraments rather than seven. So this is the big shift. Uh, one of the big shifts in the Reformed churches is that you only have baptism and Eucharist as sacraments after that. So Henry had actually written against Luther's theology, essentially, in defense of the seven sacraments, in defense of the Catholic theology. And he gets a, a title from the Pope. This is before the break with Rome, of course. He gets the title Defender of the Faith uh, given to him by the Pope. So as a kind of thank you. So it's not, so Henry himself was not really in favor of, of the Protestant theology per se. He did find it expedient also to go with a Protestant notion of closing convents and monasteries, but that was more of a financial and political decision for uh, Henry because he then confiscated all those church lands essentially. So it was not so much for theological reasons. And in England, in the Church of England under Henry, you continue to have the, the Catholic version of the mass throughout the entire period also until the death of Henry. So he's not trying to change the theology of things, but obviously that's the way it, it heads. And by the time you get
get to you know Elizabethan things, there's there are significant theological derivations. I guess you could say splits. Mm-hmm. Um, did he simply lose control? Did he set something in motion that he couldn't direct after a certain point? Well, I think the people who helped him break away from England, his his ministers who helped him break away from England, help, helped him craft the English laws that passed in Parliament, who helped him break away from from the uh, from the papacy. Those people were devout. Protestants. So there were people who helped him do what he wanted to do, who wanted to see actual a Protestant reform in England. It's not really possible uh, for them to push Henry much further during his lifetime. But when Henry died, he had had time to marry six times, right? The second <laughs> wife did not last either. And the second wife also only gave him a daughter. So he had to marry three more times and get only one son out of those three more marriages. So when Henry died, his young son Edward was the one who became king of England. He was only nine years old at the time he became king. But the people who uh, Edward had been surrounded by as a child were uh, devout Protestants who wanted to reform the English church. So Edward doesn't live long. He dies at the age of 15. So he he doesn't have time to do a whole lot. But during this time, a short, brief reign of the boy king, you do get radical Protestant reformation in England, actually. Uh, So the real shift to Protestant theology initially happens under Edward. But because Edward lives for such a short time, then uh, when he dies, the oldest daughter of uh, Henry VIII, who is Mary, who has uh, remained Catholic this whole time, she becomes the new queen and she returns England to Catholicism. So it's a very, the process of establishing Protestantism in England is a very messy Uh, It's a very messy project, essentially. And it doesn't happen overnight. It is a a decades-long project, really. And it's not just religious, obviously. It's it's very political. It's very political, yes. There is an attempt at the end of Edward's life when he is, when it's becoming clear that he is dying, he's been sick for a a period of time for several months and he's getting, he keeps getting worse. And at that point he's realizing that he's dying. His Protestant advisors are realizing that he's dying. They know that the next one in line is Mary, his older half-sister Mary, and it's very clear what intentions she has with returning England to Catholicism. And so Edward does not want to see his reforms undone, so he attempts to um, uh, to uh, create a situation where uh, his half-sister Mary is excluded from inheriting the throne, and instead he wants to give it to a Protestant relative of his uh, who, whose name was Jane Grey. Jane Grey had married, very conveniently, the son of one of Edward's main advisors also. Uh, so the idea was then that, the, that Jane Grey was going to be the Protestant queen who would rescue Edward's Protestantism in England, essentially, and the Protestant reforms. But in England, um, actually, it turned out that Mary had more support than Edward. So there seemed at the time to be more support for the idea of Mary being the rightful heir and less emphasis on the religion. So it was really the politics that kind of won out the way people understood how, how royal power should work and how you inherited royal power. And Mary was seen as having the better claim and therefore got more support. So Jane Gray was 
it's a tragedy for Jane Grey. She's only Queen of England for uh, for a few days, a little over a week, and then <laughs> she's toppled uh, by Mary, and uh, Mary is crowned queen, and then um, she goes about setting about returning England to Catholicism with a very strong hand. Yes, right? <laughs> yes. Well, that's true. Uh, she really she's a very devout Catholic, and she really believes that Edward has has led the English population astray and have endangered their souls. But we have to remember that it is a very bloody period, of course, the Reformation. Uh, but that is also because people were really passionate in believing that it was crucial to ensure that people practice the, the right version of faith, whatever, you know, obviously people disagreed about what the right version were. But they argued if they didn't, if people did it wrong, that they would be forever damned. Uh, and so, of course, there, there was a great kind of sense of urgency that this was necessary. And so Mary, when she is Queen of England, this is in the 1550s, when she's Queen of England, she restores the connections with the papacy. We get a papal legate in England for the first time since they had left under Henry. And then she does go about also executing people who were recalcitrant Protestants, people who did not want to return to Catholic mass, essentially. So we do have a period, about 300 people were specifically burned at the stake. That was the sort of traditional punishment form of execution for heresy, which meant having false belief or, and, and spreading, trying to spread false belief to others also. So you do have that during the period of Mary's reign. Towards the end of her of the period, it actually kind of subsides because at that point she has advisors that think it's a bit much. Take it back a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the fact that this is a time period when people very strongly believe in their faith. I mean, I think we're so, the states today, especially with the at least theoretical separation of church and state, the, uh, the cynical idea that religion is often a, a tool to achieve goals by other ends. In this time period, it is so real and so fundamental to people's existence that these beliefs are real, which means that there's a lot at stake there i mean there's eternity at stake which is what makes so so much of this so violent right and we are used also to uh you know living in a part of the world and in a time period where we have the ideal of of religious toleration that people are free to choose how they want to worship and of course that concept did, did not exist in europe in the 1500s and this is this is why the reformation gets so bloody because people are convinced that you have to do it the right way and if others won't do it the right way you have to force them to do the right way uh, because yes their their eternal souls are at stake and so it's very crucial right and people are willing to go to war over these issues. Of course, it, uh, wars in the 1500s and 1600s, religious wars are never just about religion. They get wrapped into right. succession politics and economics and other things like wars tend to do. But one of the reasons I think while, while it's such a thorny issue that takes such a long time in Europe to come to terms with is because people had so much at stake. So when Mary is, uh, when her policy is to punish these people by having them burned at the stake, that's that's for, for their own good as a form of punishment for them individually and also to serve as an example to others to not do that, right? Right, right. 
And it's this notion to kind of blends the, the Christian community of heresy, right? And it's not one thing, of course, because England eventually becomes Protestant, even though Catholic minority always sort of remains in some corners. But it does, under uh, Mary's successor, eventually become Protestant. But one thing to remember also is that um, Mary only reigns for a short five years, so she doesn't have a very long reign. So her activities when it came to executing Protestants is done in a relatively short time period. Elizabeth, once she creates the, the Protestant settlement in England, so the successor to Mary, Mary's younger half-sister. When she comes to power, she is going to rule in England for a much longer time, almost half a century. So Elizabeth becomes queen in 1558, and she dies in 1603. So she rules for decades, much longer. And she has to deal with political opposition as well. And there are executions during Elizabeth's reign of political opponents, both Catholics and Puritans, also for that matter. So it's not like Mary is the only one doing this. Right. Uh, Henry <laughs> did it also. Henry killed people who refused to recognize the new version of the English church, the break from Rome. Uh, there were people famously executed for not being willing to, you know, um, agree with the oath, this new oath of allegiance to Henry as the head of the Church of England. So so other rulers did it as well. I think, um, so So Mary is not unique in that, I guess is what I'm saying. I think it's just a more concentrated period when it happens. And then of course, what when England becomes officially Protestant, there's also a lot of writings against Mary's actions. And, and Mary gets heavily vilified as sort of the, the Catholic villain in, in English religious history, in Protestant English religious history. And also seeing this is when she gets the nickname Bloody Mary, right, for right. these executions. But again, it's not just something that Mary does. The other English uh, <laughs> monarchs do this as well, but it tends to be more kind of spread out over a longer time period. So we, so we have the, the uh, English Reformation that sort of begins with Henry in a way that he didn't intend that more or less is completed by the, you know, by the end of his youngest daughter's reign, Elizabeth's reign, mm -hmm. that defines a huge chunk of English history. And you have studied this a long time. And I'm sure you formed some opinions. So I'm going to ask you one of those questions mm -hmm. that historians hate to get because it's <laughs> so complicated, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh -huh. um, in the end, was the English Reformation good or bad for England? Huh. Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's your opinion, right? So you can't be right. wrong. <laughs> right. Well, I guess that would depend on how you're, you know, religious, religiously, it might depend on your religious allegiance. Uh, of course, the um, Protestants in England would say, obviously, it's a good thing, whereas Catholics in England and Catholics elsewhere might say it's a bad thing because it, uh, it breaks up the Christian unity uh, in Europe. I mean, you know, and I'm even yes. talking in the long term, like all the yes, way up to... Yes, yes, it does. What it does do is bind England closer to other Protestant nations in Northern Europe, you get as a result of the Reformation, you get this kind of division between the Protestant North and the and the largely Catholic South. But yeah, I have a hard time putting a value right. on it, 
really, if it's good or bad. It does, of course, put England against, it pits England against mostly Spain, right? In the latter portion of the 16th, 16th century, England and Spain fight wars uh, in England famously are able to be victorious in those wars, largely because of a great deal of luck, really. And, um, <laughs> oh, you mean also Providence, Spanish, I'm sure. Sort of, you know, <laughs> Spanish kind of extending themselves too thin at the time. Um, but it does, that victory against Spain will eventually, of course, sort of help England be more active in the Americas, for example. If one want to call that helping England or good or bad, I don't know. It's, right. it's an explanation for what happens next, sort of. Right. I don't know if one want to call all the colonial ventures, you know, good or bad or put value judgments. Well, yeah, exactly. It's always, yeah, value. We try to avoid value judgments, but they make such good questions. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. But you're right. Certainly aligned England with a certain group of, of nations and peoples against other nations and peoples that lasted for a for a good while. Mm-hmm. So how much did the English Reformation start to push the colonization of North America by the English? Would it have been a slower process if it had been a, a Catholic England rather than a Protestant England? Uh, part of the issue, actually, I mean, Henry initially had some notions about this. Um, actually, Henry is as early as Henry's father, Henry VII, the first of the Tudor kings who came to power in England in 14. 14- 85 after a lengthy English civil war, he actually sent a voyager to North America to explore in North America. So there was this idea within the early Tudors that this might be interesting because the, look, others are doing it, the Spanish are doing it, the uh, Portuguese are are voyaging. But then the, the messy part of the Reformation in England makes it so that the English monarch don't really have the time and resources to participate in the early portion of the voyages in the 1500s, like England doesn't really do very much until the religious settlement has already occurred towards the beginning of Elizabeth's reign. So it's really in Elizabeth's reign, the second half of the 1500s, that the English crown starts to sponsor some voyages. So I think initially, actually, the the Reformation kind of hampers any any efforts, any major English efforts uh, at participating in voyages. And it's not really until the Reformation is concluded that England gets more heavily involved in colonial ventures by the by the start of the 1600s. Right. And it's sort of having to play catch up at that point. Right, right. And of course, the famously, the Elizabethan pirates <laughs> were, uh, rather than focusing very much on colonization, they tended to just focus on being pirates and stealing right. <laughs> Spanish gold from the Spanish convoys uh, coming from the Americas. Uh, this is part of what, not the whole story, obviously, but part of also what leads to the war with Spain later on. So uh, the English were taking kind of shortcuts <laughs> initially. And then it's not really until after Elizabeth's reign that you get this notion of colonization. And of course, then it's part of that is prompted by colonies for profit, like like in the Mid-Atlantic. And then part of it is also as it comes as a result of people in England who think that English Protestantism is not Protestant enough. Uh, the Puritans who want to then go and found new communities in 
in the Americas, in New England specifically, in order to be able to be Protestant in a way that they are not allowed to be Protestant at home in England. So there's that also, of course, there's the impetus uh, for colonization by Puritans then to leave an England that's not Protestant enough for them, essentially. Well, that makes sense. And that gets us into Thanksgiving. And that is beyond the scope of this podcast. So (laughs) we may stop there. Dr. Luthman, thank you so much for sharing a little time with us and teaching us a little bit about the English Reformation. And I guess without meaning to sort of how it gets us into the into the new world. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Perfect, folks. We hope you enjoyed that. We hope you will tune in again for next week's podcast. But until we run into you again, please stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.